0: The table is set for another Literary Roundtable, where we serve you the perfect pairing of author and expert. No book or subject is off-limits at the only place on the net where you can join in the discussion and ask our guests any questions you like. So pull up a chair and join the discussion. Welcome to the Literary Roundtable. I'd like to welcome everyone to our fifth and final part of our five-part series on the Literary Roundtable. We're calling A House United, Understanding America and Each Other. The purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our country has become so divided and how we might begin the process of healing and bringing our country back together again. Once again, joining us today is author Antonio Almali. He is the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel, The Ones They Left Behind, which is a powerful story about the journey one Civil War veteran takes to heal a divided nation. The book is set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during Reconstruction and America Today. We've been discussing many of these parallels throughout the series, and we will continue to discuss those in this final hour. He is also the author of A House United, and you can find out more about Antonio and his books at antonioalmali.com. Antonio, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Good to have you back. Also joining the roundtable today is Doug McAdam, who is the Ray Lyman Wilbur Professor of Sociology at Stanford University and the former director of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He's also the award-winning author or co-author of over a dozen books and some 85 other publications in the area of political sociology. His latest book, Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Postwar America, is co-authored by Karina Kluse. Deeply Divided takes an in-depth look at American politics from the Depression to the present and argues that party politics alone is not responsible for the divisive mess we find ourselves in. It's truly an extraordinary book, and I urge anyone interested in politics to get a copy of this book. Doug, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Joe, and delighted to be here.
0: Thank you. In our earlier discussions on the Literary Roundtable with John Blake of CNN and Dr. Victor Hansen and Jim Campbell, we discussed many of the parallels between America during the Civil War and today. We touched on topics of race, religion, income inequality, and polarization, among many other topics. Today, we're going to continue those discussions, and Antonio, I think I'll have you lead off this segment, and Doug, feel free to jump in at any time. In our previous discussions, we've outlined the many parallels, as I said, between America during the Civil War and Reconstruction and today. Now, out of necessity, Lincoln needed to become a supreme deal maker politically. Can you talk a little bit about what challenges he faced once he was elected and how he handled those challenges?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, his biggest challenge was managing a war effort that spanned many thousands of miles in scope, uh, what turned out to be millions of men under arms, and obviously a logistical effort to support many, many armies in the field. More importantly, he had to learn about tactics and strategy and find out how to understand generalship so that he could ask the right questions of his military commanders. Otherwise, they would tell them what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. So managing a war effort of the scope of the Civil War was massive. On a political level, I think his biggest challenge was that he had won the election. I don't think he even got a plurality in 1860. I think there were four or five other parties that ran against him that basically carved up the pro-Northern Slavery vote, and he was uh, elected by less than 40 percent of the uh, of the popular vote. So he had no nothing even remotely like a mandate. And worse, he had to deal with people who, you know, in his own cabinet were former rivals. His genius was that he actually put them in the cabinet in order to force them to take responsibility for their actions and not simply backstab him from from the sidelines, you know, through newspaper editorials or whatever. So he put them front and center in positions of responsibility and said, okay, let's talk about, let's lead, let's not argue and show me what you've got. And I think that strategy from a political standpoint was brilliant, fraught with risk and certainly fraught with anxiety and mistrust at a lot of levels. But he seemed to to understand human nature pretty much better than anybody else did and and knew how to motivate them to do the best that they could, even in spite of themselves. And he, in fact, walked into office with at least two, maybe, I can't remember how many states seceded as a direct result of his winning the election before he was inaugurated. So he stepped into office with seceding already, having seceded already. So he he didn't have any... uh, 100 days of time to kind of, you know, do miracles with legislative stuff like you have now, you know, grace periods and all that. He had to get on it from the moment he walked into the Oval Office, and he never stopped until he was assassinated.
1: Yeah, there really, there could not, I don't think there's been a president in U.S. history who stepped into office with more challenges on his plate. I mean, Roosevelt taking over in in the height of the Depression probably is a distant second in that regard.
0: Speaking of that, in your book, Deeply Divided, you write about how political division and economic inequality are eroding America's democratic ideals and practices. You also discuss at length how we got into this mess. Can you share with us how did we get into the mess we're in today?
1: Well, I mean, the argument we develop in the book, I think, is pretty complicated. It takes uh, you know a full book to lay out, but I'll try to Give a simple version of the answer. I mean, you look at the U.S. in the post World War II period, there's unbelievable consensus or a tremendous ideological overlap between the two major parties. This is a period where the two parties are both the center of gravity is kind of moderate centrist, creating all sorts of opportunities for bipartisan cooperation in Congress. Congress is routinely averaging 1,500, 1,600. Enactments in any two-year session of Congress were probably as comparatively equal in economic terms as we've ever been. So there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, kind of cooperation, good feeling, trust in government, et cetera. And we're talking about 50s, 60s, well into the well into the 60s in any case. So f- 55 years ago we were a, a remarkably united country and now of course we're deeply divided.
0: Excuse me, do you think that we were we were united because of the depression and the world wars? We had we all had a, a common enemy if you will.
2: I
1: think that's part of it for sure. I mean, we constructed this national narrative that we pulled ourselves out of the depression and we beat back the forces of fascism in World War II, you know, so that's part of it the idea of a common enemy. We come out of the war, and we're almost immediately in a cold war, and we're also now in this struggle against uh, the Soviet Union. So that continues to be an external threat that helps to bind the country together. But it's also a period of extraordinary economic prosperity, which also is creating lots of good feeling politically as well. And the last piece of it that we we talk about in the book is that the, the period, the media post-war period, there's really the absence of social movements. There's no significant social movements operating until really we hit the 60s and the civil rights movement really explodes on the scene. The significance of that is movements throughout American history pushed the two parties to the ideological margins. So during the post-war period, there's not there's, that centrifugal force is not operating. The two parties really are hewing to the center, the kind of political middle, if you will. But starting in the 60s and really continuing to the present, we've had a string of movements, especially on the Republican side, pushing the Republican Party farther and farther to the right. We also had that in the Democratic Party in the 60s in particular, pushing the Democrats off center. So the parties are moving away from each other, and they're moving away from each other on the issue of race, first of all, You know, the South, this will connect us back to the Civil War, the South never really gets over its historic hatred of the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, and becomes essentially a one-party autocracy in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, the solid Democratic South. The South aligns with the Democratic Party. It stays absolutely loyal to the Democratic Party until the 60s, when the Democrats under Kennedy and Johnson, you know, they embrace the need for civil rights reform and the Democrats start pushing left, especially on the issue of race, that angers the white South. The Republicans, who had been the more liberal party on race, begin to court the votes of Southern segregationists, but also white racial conservatives around the country. And the, the Republicans move sharply right on the issue of race. And we begin to, hollow out the middle. I mean, it's just beginning in the 60s. But that's the same process that we're, we're seeing today. I mean, essentially, Trump is only the most extreme expression of a form of racial politics that the Republicans have practiced for almost 60 years now.
0: Well, you talk about in the book that it used to be that in order to get elected, you needed to be more moderate. You needed to get those votes. Then, as you have just said, in the 60s, with the racial upheaval, both parties are now pandering to the extremes. Did the yeah, moderate have to choose a side?
1: Well- I mean, there's a again, this is a complicated issue, but, I mean, it's a great question. When I was first in grad school, which is back in the 70s, there was a, a substantial body of literature in political science organized around something called the median voter theorem, and the argument simply was that in a winner-take-all system like ours, it was suicide for parties to move too far off center, that it was almost a natural law of politics, that what you were trying to do was to create a kind of moderate coalition of the of the middle the political middle and that again if you if you stray too far from that you were in trouble that's not where we are at all now the what we now talk about is appealing to the base and so parties are right. not appealing to the median voter at all they're appe- they're appealing to the ideological wing the extreme wing of the two parties and some of that is because of the a lot of that is because of the current system of primaries and caucuses we have. These are low turnout elections. And we know something about low turnout elections. They don't tend to attract moderate centrist voters. They attract the mobilized ideological movement wings of the two parties. So to come through the primary process, especially on the Republican side, you've got to be more extreme than the next guy. So it's creating a polarized political system that doesn't actually reflect public opinion. That is, the modal American remains a moderate centrist, but our primary system amplifies the voice, if you will, of the ideological extremes. And it's, having, it's had a powerful effect on presidential elections, since the system was put in place in the 1970s.
0: Well, doesn't that just disenfranchise the moderates? Isn't that how things get done? Isn't this counterproductive?
1: Yes, I mean I think that's right. I mean I mentioned earlier that during the post-war period, Congress routinely enacted or had 1500, 1600 enactments in any two-year session of Congress. The last two Congresses are have the, all, the lowest in modern U.S. history: 260, 280. Enactments, we basically do not have a functioning legislative body. Now, whether we will under Trump, because we've got a united Republican government, remains to be seen. But we have we really fundamentally hamstrung our legislative branch because there's no basis for for bipartisan cooperation.
2: Doug, do you think that this has the strange consequence of actually shrinking those very bases that the two parties are chasing in the false notion that that's where the gold is, that's where the ore is? I mean, if it's bringing out a a much narrower, more partisan-driven voter in these primary-driven elections and fewer and fewer people are actually turning out to vote, you know, in other words, it's nullifying the very idea of mobilizing a base. Where does that leave, as a strategy, where does that leave not just the Republican? It's not one party, it's both. They're both searching for a wider base that they're driving away from from themselves because of these other issues that you just brought up. Does, yeah, does that make think, sense to you?
1: It does. I, I absolutely think you're right. I mean, and one, one of the d- disturbing trends is the while all states are required to have a primary process, Or means of selecting delegates and primaries used to be the principal way that happened. More and more states are moving to caucuses because they're cheaper to mount, but the turnout in caucuses is like 2% of the electorate, whereas primaries draw 12 to 15%. So the caucuses are even better, better suited to The mobilized, ideological, non-representative wings of the two parties. So fewer and fewer people are setting the president, the agenda in presidential politics. That's really dangerous in my view. Mm -hmm. You know, we say we're deeply divided and certainly the political class is deeply divided. The party activists are deeply divided. If you look at survey data, the country's not as divided as the political classes. But the middle has been marginalized to the extent that we, it's not actually shaping our political system much at all. And somehow we need a set of institutional reforms that will reinvigorate the middle, will re- help us rebuild the political middle and force the two parties to court those voters rather than their base.
0: It seems like the pendulum will have to swing back, and the moderates are going to become the red meat for both parties to try to get votes from, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, some people say, well, there's no middle anymore. That's false. The modal answer, this, there have been polls, I mean, surveys for at least 80 years now asking Americans, How they identify politically, and the answers are typically very conservative, somewhat conservative, moderate, somewhat liberal, very liberal. The modal answer is moderate, so there's lots of moderates out there who are increasingly disgusted and disaffected and so not participating as much. So in some sense, it's the moderate's fault for not voting in primaries, not attending caucuses. But the point is, if in fact you had a primary system where voters were required to cast ballots in one election cycle, you would reinvigorate the middle and you'd force the two parties to pitch their message to the moderate center which remains numerically dominant.
0: Well, it seems to me, I mean, Antonio, you may may or may not know the answer to this, but from a point that you made early on, you were saying that Lincoln did not get what he got, maybe 40%, uh, not even, uh, of the popular vote. Wasn't he forced into trying to build a consensus?
2: He had no choice. I mean, the government would have ceased to exist on day one because all of these partisan viewpoints would have trumped any dialogue around okay, let's just find the ways in which we can bring as many of our people together around uh, some core basic issue and not worry about too much else, And which is why on some level it's an interesting thing. I don't know how you feel about this, Doug, but my read of of the history is that Lincoln shifted in his approach to the war, most especially his message about why the country was fighting it. There was this very powerful shift from, Preserving the Union as the penultimate goal, you know, which is political, economic, based in realism, to emancipating the slaves and essentially ridding the country of this original sin that he felt would kill the country. And it became almost a religious, and he was not what I would call a religious man. But I think he saw it as kind of like a divine intervention that the sin of slavery be expiated with blood if there's no other way to do it. But he shifted his core appeal, which was a huge political risk, because there was no massive support for freeing the slaves. I mean, there were very powerful northern interests who wanted to see slavery preserved, That the, let the South go, we can live as two countries, it's fine, da-da-da. You know, and, and that kind of complacency would have been absolutely fatal to uh, Lincoln's plan. So I think the fact that he was adjusting and cali- recalibrating and, and trying to find a message that could unify people and also, by the way, bring in enough popular support from foreign countries that they wouldn't say, hey, you know what, this is a great time to invade the U.S. They're completely helpless. Let's get back, uh, you know... Canada, or let's get back some territories that they stole from, you know, there was all kinds of calculations that he made to preserve the union, but at the same time elevate the cause. There, you don't find those kinds of elevating causes anymore. I don't know whether it's because the stakes are lower, people's interest levels have migrated towards, you know, self-preservation versus some kind of national identity or unity, I don't believe, that. I'd like not to believe that, but by the same token, we have a kind of a partisan gridlock that reminds me very much of what the country was like in the run-up, in the 20 or 30 years run-up to the Civil War. Same kind of inability to talk about bringing things together, and just an absolute refusal, compromise was a sin worse than anything. And in that environment, it's pretty hard to find a middle ground and it's certainly pretty hard to mobilize what you call that modal you know, group, which is this moderate sea of voters or citizens who are searching for an identity to get behind.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I think your characterization of the 20-year run-up to the Civil War, especially the 1850s, sort of eerie parallels to the partisan divide of today and the lack of a kind of broader collective vision that would bring the country together. And it's interesting. I think you're absolutely right in the way you characterize the the shift in Lincoln's own thinking, but also the way he strategically frames the war effort. And we come out of the war as a nation with a kind of unified moral purpose, which doesn't mean that all Mm -hmm. citizens are abolitionists necessarily, but the country as a whole has found a kind of unified moral footing, if you will. And it's interesting, we go to World War II, and we also wound up fighting that war, and Roosevelt framed it as a kind of effort to oppose the master race ideology of the Nazis, and so there's, again, a kind of embrace of a a, a kind of more inclusive America after the war, so there is a commitment to at least limited racial inclusion, also sort of an end to certain kinds of religious quotas at elite schools, so... We think of the post-war period as a period where America is unified in seeking a more inclusive sense of itself. So we come out of both of those wars in in occupying a kind of moral high ground that we certainly do not occupy today.
0: Yeah. Was this all really just about money, and it was presented to the public as this moral imperative?
1: No, I'm not quite sure what you mean about the the money. What was the money aspect of World War 2?
0: Here's what I'm thinking, that us getting into the war in the Middle East was really about oil. Was there a similar parallel to the world wars where we couched it into, you know, bringing democracy to the world when, in fact, behind all of that, there was some sort of financial gains to be made from the spread of democracy?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that there were no economic incentives or factors operating. We were, the idea that by the late 30s, we were out of the Depression is wrong. The Depression, we our GDP remained lower in 1939 than it was in 29 or 30. So we had not come all the way back in any way, shape, or form. The country was still deeply mired in Depression. And I think there was an understanding on Roosevelt's part and other people's parts that – If we entered the war, at least in an economic sense, that is, we were producing military um, materials to support the war effort in Europe, that, in fact, it would be a spur to our economy. But I don't think that was the principal motivation. I think once Hitler had sort of run all through Europe and essentially controlled most of Europe with the exception of England, there was a real fear that Europe might fall, all of Europe might fall to the Nazis. And I think that created a, a very powerful kind of set of strategic-slash-moral incentives to enter the war effort. And I think Roosevelt understood that the, the public was reluctant. We had been an isolationist country since the end of World War One. And he, he, he didn't have the country behind him, so raising the moral stakes, I think, did help to invigorate, create pub, public support for the war effort. So, you know, as with Lincoln, morality and some pragmatic calculus with some economic consequences or implications was, you know, was operating. But I don't think the the moral framing of the war effort by Roosevelt
0: was just so much
1: window dressing.
0: Good answer to a really bad question. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a bad question at all.
2: (laughs) You know, it strikes me, and again, this might be overly conspiratorial, but I'll throw it out anyway. You know, it's curious that, as you say, Roosevelt did not have a mandate. He had a huge struggle all through the 30s mobilizing public opinion, that great moderate you know, sea of voters to understand the stakes of this international thing that was going on, not simply in Europe, but in China and in all across Asia, the Japanese were also, you know, doing their thing. And, uh, you know, we were actually in some ways fomenting that by being their largest supplier of oil. I guess what I'm getting to is this, that it's curious, both Lincoln and FDR seized on two attacks as a way to finally get the country to say, okay, enough is enough. Lincoln basically levered the South into firing on Fort Sumter because he simply refused to yield to their threats, and he called their bluff out. But he knew that he he couldn't initiate an attack. Politically, it would have been suicide. He understood that the way to, to marshal goodwill was to be the victim. And so you get this idea of Sumter and Pearl Harbor as being kind of mirror images of two leaders who are looking for ways in which to jumpstart or to finally mobilize public opinion with an event, an exterior threat that they couldn't otherwise have done by talking about internal threats or threats that didn't directly affect confront the 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 population you know i am not sure if that's overly conspiratorial or not relevant but i've always been struck by how history seems to always have these events that signal you know a very violent uh, reaction on the part of the country and it usually revolves around being attacked by somebody
1: oh i think that's fascinating i hadn't thought lot about the parallels between Fort Sumter and Pearl Harbor, but actually, I think you're making a compelling case.
2: <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs>
2: but it's Machiavellian. I mean, you know, if you look at Roosevelt and Lincoln as master politicians, it's just one of the tools in the toolbox. And, yeah,
1: I think uh, that's right. That... And again, these guys, we think of them as these kind of high-minded moralists, and they were <laughs> at some level, but oh. they were unbelievable pragmatists. They were so savvy, looking at a very complicated environment, both domestically and internationally, and charting a course through these very troubled waters. So they were consummate pragmatists, but they were perfectly capable, as orators especially, of uh, framing a strategy in high-minded moral terms as a way to, as you say, to kickstart or jumpstart a policy that, you know, the country was reluctant to pursue.
0: Do you think that's what George W. and Cheney were doing with September 11th?
1: I mean, at some level, yes. Uh, but again, that, we've never had an attack quite like that one. And so the level of anger uh, in the country was, you know, what what I was saying is that Roosevelt really, even in 19, on the eve of the Pearl Harbor attack, there wasn't good public op- opinion polling, but it wasn't clear that the public still, wanted to join this fray, even at that late hour at all. So Roosevelt really did use the attack to help push that forward. The, we have all sorts of public opinion data in the immediate wake uh, aftermath of 9-11. The country w- was up for anything. So right. it, it wasn't that George W. and Cheney had to persuade a reluctant country.
2: I agree with that. I wanted to double back on something you said earlier about where you date some of these issues around our inability to become more united, and you talk about post World War II. Do you think there's any merit in the notion that some of these issues are as old as the Republic? Our political process, because it's expedient, because it seeks compromise, kick the can down the road on what I believe is the fundamental poison in our country, which is income inequality and the distribution of wealth and the way our justice system is very selective about who benefits from it. And people of color, people of poverty been historically on on the short end of that from the very beginning of founding of the republic. Do you think there's anything to the idea that these are not new problems? They didn't surface yesterday or four decades ago or even a 100 years ago. They've been there all along. We just have never been able, from a civic standpoint, to muster the political will to confront them, because to do that, you've got to stare at your history and you've got to really go, oh, wow, did we do that, really? I mean, you know, you've know, got to take a deep breath and try to be more accountable and, and understand at least what happened. It's not like we can be responsible for slavery, but we can certainly understand how it started, how it thrived, how its legacy is still very much ingrained both in our economic system of distribution of means and in our political apportionment of politics and all across the board. How do you feel?
1: Yeah, I... I totally agree, especially on the issue of race. This has been the enduring dilemma for the United States. I agree with you, by the way, on the issue of income, inequality not income, but wealth inequality, economic inequality as well, which is at some level hard to separate from the issue of race and ethnicity and so forth. But we have never really resolved the fundamental issue of race, racial inequality. These issues are not new. Race obviously was at the center of The period you know extraordinarily well and have written beautifully about, that is the run-up to the Civil War, the Civil War and its aftermath. But it's not as if, obviously, the Civil War resolved the issue once and for all. Reconstruction imposed a significant degree of equality on the South, but Reconstruction came to an end in 1876 or 1877. Very quickly, the South was essentially control over issues of race, was returned effectively to the states. The South became, as I said, a one-party autocracy. The hatred of the Republican Party lived on well into the 20th century, ironically creating the basis for the New Deal coalition, which Roosevelt put together, northern liberal labor Democrats united with southern segregationists, and the New Deal coalition held sway from 1932 to 1968. Liberal Democrats controlled the federal government, Congress, and the presidency, so we had the most sustained period of progressive policymaking in U.S. history leveraged on the basis of this odd coalition between Southern segregationists and Northern liberal labor Democrats. If we ever moved in the direction of reducing economic inequality and creating a basis for racial inclusion, it was during those years, but it was the odd ongoing legacy of division, regional division around issues of race that allowed that to happen. And when the Democrats embraced the need for civil rights reform in the 60s, the coalition came apart and created the basis for a new enduring political coalition on the right between an increasingly solid Republican South and traditional Republican strength in the Midwest and in certain parts of the Intermountain West so race continues to run through our political and economic troubles down to the very day and again Tr- trump himself embraced an even more extreme version of the racial politics that's been part and parcel of the republican party for 55 60 years you can't tell the story of american politics or american political economy over the full history of the of the country without putting race at kind of the center of that narrative, and that's where we still are today.
2: I'm just wondering, what is it about the racial issue that hangs on as vehemently and doggedly as it has? Is there something in our national makeup that makes it just unpalatable, too painful to actually look at it and just say, you know, okay, let's move through this. It seems as if a problem that has been this endemic and held us back for so long and is still as strongly embedded as it is. What does that say about our, or does it say something about our national character? I mean, are there other countries that you can think of, Doug, who who have this historical hang-up around a particular issue and they just can't transcend it? It just keeps dragging everybody down into the lowest kind of common denominators as it relates to uh, common discourse.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not a comparative anthropologist, but uh, there are certainly many instances around the world where you have century-long conflicts that they may appear to be damped down at some point, but they blow up again. Uh, I mean, Shia Sunni is one that we're learning a lot about in the West that has just absolutely divided Islamic societies for a long, long time, and that's you know just one example. So it's not anything unique about the United States, but this is a country that was born economically or structured economically on the back of slave labor. So from the very beginning, we were at some level invested both economically and then culturally to support that institution in a kind of with racial understandings that created this enduring basis for ongoing racial discrimination, and we've never really been able to fully get past that. It is true that, you know, if you look at younger members of American society now, in survey data, they appear to be more racially Blind than the oldest members of our citizens, but nonetheless, I mean, racial tensions, racial divisions are higher now, greater now than they've been at any time since I would say the early early to mid 1970s, something like that. And part of the Republican appeal over the last 55 years, which isn't explicitly racist, but it has, a, it has racist implications or racial implications. Nixon said at first, he's the one who really in the 60s saw that the South was increasingly up for grabs, that it was not gonna remain democratic because of the democratic embrace of civil rights reform, Johnson's embrace of civil rights reform,
2: He said, we can kiss the South goodbye for a generation after the 65 Voting Rights Act was passed. So he knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah.
1: Johnson, absolutely. I give him enormous credit. We think of him as a kind of a pragmatic, backroom politician. He was also capable of real moral vision and a certain kind of moral courage. And he understood that this was going to have really serious political consequences for the Democratic Party, the New Deal Coalition, but he also saw this as the right thing to do, and he right. wanted to move the country forward, and he did, in a legislative sense. But it it did, in fact, destroy over time the New Deal coalition, and it created a basis for a kind of new Republican majority that has race at its core. And, again, part of Nixon's standard stump speech in '68 was he said, look, the New Deal was a really good thing because that was – The few giving for the benefit of the deserving many, where the Democrats have gone off the rails under Kennedy and Johnson, is it's they're asking the many to give for the undeserving few. And in the kind of coded racial language of the period, people saw, yeah, it's those racial minorities. Uh, When Romney in 2012 talked about the 47 percent who are essentially been bought off by Obama, he was invoking the same imagery there are deserving americans who are overwhelmingly white and then there's undeserving americans undocumented the young etc and donald trump kind of picked on up on that in in you know his campaign as well so in, even though no one's using explicit racist language it's reinforcing divisions around race and dividing the country increasingly into the deserving, the hardworking, deserving, mostly white Americans who are resentful at all these undeserving others. And that's why we shouldn't keep tax rates low, because why should we be paying for these social programs or health care benefits for undeserving? So we have not in any way, shape or form resolved the fundamental racial divide on which the country, in some sense, was, was founded, or at least part of its founding. Uh, so, yeah, we we keep struggling with this issue, and it really makes us weaker as a country economically, politically, morally, in my view.
0: Is the answer to racial inequality then, do we have to just wait until white old people die and let <laughs> the younger generation that's I hope not. <laughs> but, but, you
1: know, the, that, this is one of the really interesting things because if you look at demographic trends, by 2040, the, the white voters will be a minority. The demographic noose is sort of tightening on the Republican Party uh, as a party of white racial, a coalition of white racial conservatives. I'd love to imagine that we could um, move to address this issue before demography maybe does it for us, but we're not all that close to to doing that in the in the short term anyway.
2: I was wondering whether it's a function of our our system, our institutions are essentially outmoded, they don't have the flexibility, the the capacity for flexibility that they might have when compromise essentially greased the wheel. If you keep reenacting things where everybody gets something of what they want, the process is reinforced. If you shut the process down by basically saying no, 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 the process gets stale, stagnant, constipated, eventually grinds to a halt. That's one you know potential way to look at it. The other is we haven't found issues that could actually mobilize a large group of people regardless of their party. I have to believe that there are issues that face us that have no color, that have no economic class, that have no agenda other than they're the right thing to do, And they're the best thing for the most number of people. And yet we seem to be hamstrung at every turn, whether it's because of the process and the institutions failing us or the tension span of the people in the media and their constant, always looking for fights, never trying to build bridges. You know, nobody's chipping in to help.
0: Isn't that what socialism is?
1: Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I hope you're not asking me. Um, sure. Yes. As a matter of fact, I am. No. I mean, I think I think the U.S. has, at, in various times, been able to to move forward on critically important issues that at least blurred the lines of division, whether those were racial, class related, etc. I'd like to think we're perfectly capable of doing that again. That is this one need not embrace a socialist solution to imagine an America where compromise was possible and lines of historic division could be muted, if not eliminated. We've done it before. There's there's nothing to suggest we can't do it again. To me, it would take serious institutional reforms because, in fact, we've got a set of political institutions right now that are really geared to magnifying the Voice of again, as I say, the extreme wings of parties on the one hand, or just let me say it explicitly: white voters uh, amplify the power of white votes and depress the the influence of uh, non-white votes. There's been we're now looking at six, seven years of really sustained efforts to put in place restrictive voter ID laws or other kinds of voting laws. And the intent is really clear it's to make it hard for traditional democratic constituents to vote the citizens united decision has created just an almost unlimited flow of elite money into politics that again magnifies tends to magnify the vote of white elites and to marginalize other segments of american society I talked earlier about the primaries and caucuses and the impact those have. So there's a whole set of institutions that are making it hard for the country to come together and to rebuild that civil middle. If we could engage in, in institutional reforms that reinvigorated that middle, we could move once again as a country on larger issues that are in the interests of at least the great majority of Americans. But we're not there. And, but we don't need socialism to, to necessarily be able to do that. But we need to really substantially repair uh, American, dem, uh, American democracy, which is in a really perilous state at the moment. We are a fragile democracy uh, at present because of these institutions, these flawed institutions we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I, in all I mean, seriousness, I did bring that up. I was thinking more about Bernie Sanders. Got it. Uh, Which is why I brought brought that up. kind of funny that we have this
2: knee-jerk, we still to this day, whatever it is, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, there's still a knee-jerk, kind of allergic reaction to being even thought of as a socialist, much less espousing some kind of, quote, socialist agenda. And yet you look at some of the most landmark pieces of legislation that have been passed in this country, and guess what? They are. You know, right. it's because they are designed to lift up the greatest number of people to a higher standard of living. And yeah,
1: I I, I agree with that. I mean, the, we don't say we don't talk about this a lot, but one of the things the country is fundamentally divided on, the two parties are divided on, is what's the fundamental role of the federal government mm-hmm. in the post-war. I'm sorry, from the depression until Reagan, I would say. There was broad bipartisan support for the idea that the proper role of federal government was to level the playing field, to address a disadvantage, to lift the, pop, the public up. Call that socialism or a kind of socialist tendencies. To my mind, they were associated with the period in, in American history, at least recent American history, that where we were at our best as a country and probably as strong as we've ever been but there's no consensus on that. The Republicans certainly do not see that as the proper role of the federal government, even though the Democrats in general do. I would love to see us to return to a time when that was broadly seen as the appropriate role for the federal government, which has a certain kind of socialist quality to it without, you know, putting in place a A socialist institution writ large
2: and yet when I was thinking about the similarities between now and you know pre-war and the war on my little list of bullet points is the relationship of the federal government versus states rights that argument was front and center back in the 1850s you know when the whole issue of slavery expanding into the territories became eventually what got the the South to secede they got a president who said, "Well, I'm willing to let slavery exist where it is, but no way is it going to be in Oregon or in uh, California or any of the new territories that are opened up through through expansion." And they said, "Up, oh, game over. Um, yep. That's it." You know. And and the other point I had was presidential authority. People were freaking out about Lincoln being a dictator, and we've had. We've certainly had many discussions around the role of the presidency and how much power you give executive branch. And typically when things start to get shaky, the executive branch grabs for more.
0: So it seems to me that as a country we have a lot of work to do, but there is hope. I would agree.
1: I would agree too.
0: And unfortunately, we are out of time. I would like to thank both of our guests today, author Antonio Amali. He's the author of The Ones They Left Behind and A House United. I urge everyone to get both of these books. Again, you can find out more about Antonio and his books at AntonioAmali.com. Also, Doug McAdam, who is the Ray Lyman Wilbur Professor of Sociology at Stanford University and he is the author of a, another great book that everyone should get called Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Postwar America. Antonio, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been my great pleasure and a great pleasure talking with you, Doug. And Doug, thank you for joining us today and offering your insights.
1: Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Antonio. What a pleasure to meet
2: you.
0: It was indeed. I share that. Thank you so much again, both of you, for joining us and thanking our listeners for listening. And we'll see you on the next Literary Roundtable. We would like to thank you for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Be sure to check out our website at literaryroundtable.com, where you can find out about all of our guests that will be joining us in the future. If you would like to submit questions for any of our guests, you can tweet us at at literaryrt, Or you can email us your questions to lrtquestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Joe Marsh, and I hope you will pull up a chair and join us for our next Literary Roundtable, where you are always welcome. Guided by Jazar and David Zeste.